So Tipping Points is a program that funds um, technologies and businesses that are at the tipping point of creating big industries in space. And there's no technology that I can think of that's more at the tipping point than the combination of things that we'll be demonstrating here. We'll be demonstrating new technologies for Momentus in Momentus's space transportation business. And we'll be putting to bed so many technologies for asteroid mining. So we think we have a high chance if NASA makes an opportunity for tipping points to win this. But what we're planning on doing is flying Mini-B into space for cheap, for relatively low cost, on a big rocket on an ESPA ring. So these ESPA rings, they, they, they attach to the rocket, and you put the ESPA ring. And on top of the ESPA ring, you put, put the big satellite that was being launched. And then the ESPA ring has multiple stations on it where small sats can be launched into space. So what we intend to do is use two of the stations on the Esper ring for our mission. One will hold the Mini B with the momentous bigger eyed bus, mm -hmm. and the other will hold the artificial asteroid. So it goes into okay. space. The artificial asteroid is let loose. The Mini B is let loose. The Mini B deploys its solar concentrators, deploys the asteroid capture bag. This is the bag that will capture the asteroid in. That artificial asteroid goes tumbling out into low Earth orbit. The Mini-B flies up to it, rendezvous with it, captures it in the bag, cinches the bag closed, turns those concentrators on the sun and through the optical train, sends that sunlight into the uh, artificial asteroid and does optical mining on it right there in space. It's time for another episode of the Cold Star Project. We're focusing on small sats in space and my favorite thing, asteroid mining. And we're here with Joel Surcell, who I'm super like just bananas excited to have on the show because well he has got so much experience and so much technical know-how of having done this stuff for so long you're a doctor of space propulsion and plasma physics that's from caltech uh, and you're with two companies right now trans uh, astronautica transastro which is your company uh, which is all about uh, optical mining technology uh, we'll be getting into that kind of picks up uh, an asteroid in a bag and mines it inside, which is really cool. I watched uh, some videos of you presenting on this. And then you're the chief technology officer at Momentus Space, uh, where you're using water-based propulsion technology. So I'm super excited about that. And you're talking about cost reduction. Basically, you get a launch vehicle to send the vehicle up into low Earth orbit, and then your company or, or Momentus will kick that out to some custom orbit way out right. there so thanks for being here let's jump right into it you have joel some of the deepest experience that i have seen so far i've been connecting with a ton of people in the space industry everybody's super friendly which i'm very appreciative of uh, you are a principal engineer and project manager at jpl and you designed their space project process which being a process engineer i'm like wow this is really neat so i'm curious what was your biggest surprise or learning experience there um, and I imagine it's a people thing, not a mechanical thing, but over to you. What was my biggest learning experience yeah. the, uh, as the chief architect of JPL's end-to-end -end process? Yeah. Oh, wow. That's great. <laughs> uh, because that's also a little bit of ancient history for me. That was mm. in uh, the late 1990s. A um, couple of things. One, when it comes to process design, the KISS principle applies. Keep it simple and successful. Mm. And two... Um, it is all about the art of leadership and culture and how do you change a culture uh, to, to embrace the values that get you to the business goals that you need. And 
So, um, uh, and the hardest thing in, in the world to do in any organization is to change its values. So that was a tremendous learning experience for me, which then, you know, paid off in many other settings since then. You know, I, I was the chief systems engineer of a multi-billion dollar uh, Air Force satellite communications network. Mm -hmm. Tried to get the Air Force to be more efficient and systematic in its systems engineering processes. And those lessons from JPL really applied a lot. However, I, let me just go back. That was a yeah. wonderful introduction you gave about me and uh, 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 it stroked my ego like great crazy so <laughs> the rest of the day. But um, I did want to, I did want to just point out that Transastra, by the way, do you know what this picture is here? Is it of your, it's, it's of us. You tell me. Okay, well, I'll tell <laughs> I guess you, be wrong. I'll, 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 I'll say stay tuned for later in this podcast and I'll tell you what this picture is. Okay. But Transastra is a, is a space resource mining company. Mm -hmm. And our optical method of asteroid mining is uh, our, one of our cornerstone technologies. But we are also very into lunar ice mining. And mm -hmm. we have some really exciting inventions in that area. And we'll be making some exciting announcements about our work in that area in the coming days. Um, but this is something we're extremely excited about because, um, and it involves both Momentus and Transastra. You can see the Transastra logo there. That's the Mini B asteroid mining tech demo mm. that NASA is paying Transastra and Momentus to work together on to build the uh, engineering hardware for uh, to fly that in space in a few years in low Earth orbit. And what you see, this integrated system is the Mini B tech demo. We'll be flying an artificial asteroid in low Earth orbit on that. That'll be made by our colleagues at the University of Central Florida. And that spacecraft bus at the back there is the Momentus Vigoride bus. Okay? And the Momentus Vigoride bus is part of Momentus's in space shuttle service that it will be using to ferry small sats and microsats all over low Earth orbit uh, using water as propellant. But this will be the first demonstration in space of mining water from, extra, from a material that simulates extraterrestrial resources. And we are very excited because NASA has selected the combined Transastra Momentus team, along with our other partners, including uh, Lagarde Corporation down in Orange County, that'll be building these thin film solar concentrators. Um, the Colorado School of Mines, where we're collaborating on optical mining technology. The University of Central Florida that has the science for how to make that artificial asteroid. Um, a company here in Southern California called Technoplanet, which specializes in the me mechanisms uh, that'll put all this stuff together. So we have this great collaboration and we are just thrilled that NASA is funding us with, um, we're one of two of the first ever NIAC phase three contracts. And they're funding us $2 million, which then we're matching with our investor funds to build that sucker, which is, um, which is something that actually that picture is about half scale. Hmm. Oh, okay. It's a mini B because it's actually a small sad version of an asteroid mining vehicle that demonstrates all the aspects of asteroid mining from uh, capturing the asteroid to trapping it 
to do using optical mining to drive the water out, collecting that water in cryo traps, and then using those same solar reflectors in a solar uh, thermal mode to actually propel the spacecraft around in low Earth orbit using solar thermal propulsion. So it's the end-to-end -end demo of everything that we need to go full-scale asteroid mining. And so we're extremely excited about this. And we have a roadmap that gets this in space in about three years. And then very quickly thereafter, we go for the honeybee vehicle, which is Minibee's big brother. Uh, the honeybee vehicle is about the size of a big communication satellite, the kind that Space Systems Loral or Boeing would make. And it'll get launched on a, something like a Falcon 9 and fly out to a thousand ton asteroid and bring back a hundred tons of ice. So this demonstrator is um, off to the races time for asteroid mining. We're very excited about it. NASA's very excited about it. We're incredibly honored to be among the first recipients ever of a phase three NIAC award. Right. And for those who don't know, there's a technological readiness level scale. And so to get to this point, you've, you, you've had to go through many hoops to get to that level. Yeah. So in, um, so, you know, we've been working on optical mining at Transastra since 2015. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you know the story of how Transastra started, but you know, I got involved in space. I think I've been a space engineer and innovator since I was 15 years old. And uh, I used to stay home from sick to design spacecraft and learn about astrodynamics when I was a kid. And I was deeply motivated by the fact that um, humanity is about to make its leap mm -hmm. into the solar system and you know, spread our seed uh, across the solar system. And uh, that will be the immortality project for our species. Mm. And um, that's always been my direction. So I got, so I did my undergraduate degree in engineering physics, did my PhD at Caltech and uh, went to work for NASA, had a great time, um, started the ion, the, the NSTAR ion propulsion system that took the Dawn spacecraft to the asteroids best in series. But, um, you know, they just recently decommissioned the Dawn spacecraft. And we commit, we conceived of that mission in 1992. That was too slow. So at the end of the 90s, I kind of got out of the space business mm -hmm. and uh, consultant and management, um, management consultant, trainer, that sort of thing. But um, a customer actually asked me to do due diligence on SpaceX and say, and evaluate whether they should buy their rockets. And I went and looked at it and I thought, wow, space is getting exciting. I mean, I'd been lucky enough to work with Jeff Bezos in the early days of Blue Origin and I was tracking what he was doing. Um, but, um, and, and which is fantastic. You know, it's all about reusability and low cost. When I saw that Elon was getting into the game and there was really gonna be a horse race here, I knew that space was gonna get exciting. So I decided to, I looked around and said, well, what's, what do we need? And the answer was we needed asteroid mining technology. So back in 2015, we started writing NASA proposals, won a bunch of NASA proposals and some investors came to us and provided some seed funding where we did the initial demonstrations of optical mining. And uh, it's been a heck of a roller coaster ever since. Right, and, and you guys physically made, I think in the desert somewhere, a light as bright as the sun essentially to simulate this thing? Well, no, um, uh, close. What we did was we went out to the White Sands mm -hmm. facility that the Department of Defense operates in New Mexico. They have a giant solar concentrator. Mm -hmm. And we used that giant solar concentrator 
to concentrate actual sunlight mm -hmm. onto a sample of asteroid simulant and demonstrated that we could mine it using sunlight, demonstrated that we could excavate the sample mm -hmm. and drive those volatiles out that are the ingredients of rocket propellant. And the most important rocket propellant is water. But then you right. can take those volatiles, oxygen, hydrogen, all that kind of other stuff, and you could do liquid oxygen, liquid hydrogen propellant, which is what Jay, Jeff Bezos is doing, which I think is absolutely the right strategy. Um, you, but you also get methane. So you could do methane locks, which is, um, which is what uh, uh, SpaceX is doing. Um, and so we were able to demonstrate optical mining, which it culminated in that big white sands test, but we also did subscale tests at the Colorado School of Mines. Now, more recently, and we're just writing the final report for this activity over the weekend. Here we are uh, in early November. Um, um, uh, NASA actually funded us with a phase two NIAC to build what we call the optical mining test bed, which is a large facility indoors with a simulated light source that makes it easier to do experiments, experiments in optical mining rather than having to use that giant solar concentrator. Mm. So you should, you should get a faster turnaround because you don't have to wait to use that particular product. That's right. Okay, very cool. Uh, I'm curious, so you've got this design, the, the mini B behind you. What trade-offs were you, were you conscious of making when you came up with this design? Uh, the mini B? Yeah, it's always this versus that. And right, so it, really, what it, here's, here's what drove the design of the mini B, and that is... Um, um, for asteroid mining to make sense economically, you have to go big. Mm -hmm. The smallest asteroid that it makes sense to go after is in the range of hundreds to a thousand tons or so. All right. And so for that, you need a big vehicle, which is our honeybee. Um, by the way, all of our vehicles and systems at Transaster related to asteroid mining are part of what we call the APHIS architecture, APIS, Asteroid Provided In Situ Supplies. APHIS is the um, genus name for honeybees. Hmm. So it's really based on how honeybees go out and gather nectar and bring it back and that sort of thing. So the issue is the honeybee is a big system with lots of complex technologies in it. And it's difficult for, to get a sponsor, whether it be NASA or the private sector, and we think it'll be a combination of both to step up to the big dollars, you know, hundreds mm -hmm. of millions of dollars, maybe $150 million, to build the honeybee and launch it in space on a medium class launch vehicle. You could put two honeybees on a new Glenn or one honeybee on a Falcon 9. Um, uh, that's a lot of money if you haven't proven it all in space. Mm -hmm. So the, the design driver for mini B is what's the smallest vehicle that we can, that we can do, small sat class vehicle, that demonstrates all the aspects of optical mining of asteroids in space. Um, and then we realized <clears throat> it's, you can't find asteroids that size, that right. size of a beach ball uh, with telescopes. So we decided to make our own and launch it into space with Mini B. So are you familiar with what this is here? No, nope. you'll have to tell me. That is an ESPA ring. Ah. So an ESPA ring is this way that small vehicles can launch into space uh, on a big rocket for okay. cheap. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the small rockets are, are wonderful for lots of things. They get you into space when you want to go into space at the inclination you want to go and all that kind of stuff. 
But on a dollar per kilogram basis, the big rockets are a lot less expensive. Hmm. But what we're planning on doing is flying Mini B into space for cheap, for relatively low cost, on a big rocket on an Esper ring. So these Esper rings, they, they, they attach to the rocket, and you put the Esper ring. And on top of the Esper ring, you put, put the big satellite that was being launched. And then the Esper ring has multiple stations on it where small sats can be launched into space. So what we intend to do is use two of the stations on the Esper ring for our mission. One will hold the Mini B with the momentous bigger eye bus, mm -hmm. and the other will hold the artificial asteroid. So it goes into okay. space, the artificial asteroid is let loose, the Mini B is let loose, the Mini B deploys its solar concentrators, deploys the asteroid capture bag. This is the bag that will capture the asteroid in. That artificial asteroid goes tumbling out into low Earth orbit. The Mini B flies up to it, rendezvous with it, captures it in the bag, cinches the bag closed, turns those concentrators on the sun and through the optical train, sends that sunlight into the uh, artificial asteroid and does optical mining on it right there in space. Right, and you're so, able to do this for $4 million. So with, for a few yeah. million dollars, we're yeah. building the engineering model hardware for this and um, the exact costs for this mm -hmm. are proprietary. What okay. we do say is that NASA is providing us $2 million, which right. then we're matching in different ways right. um, to actually build the engineering model hardware. And then the follow on to that will be another mission in a program such as NASA's Tipping Points, assuming mm -hmm. that we were lucky enough to win that. But we're pretty optimistic about being able to win NASA proposals. We've, been, we've had a very good track record. And um, so Tipping Points is a program that funds um, technologies and businesses that are at the tipping point of creating big industries in space. And there's no technology that I can think of that's more at the tipping point right. than the combination of things that we'll be demonstrating here. We'll be demonstrating new technologies for Momentus uh, in Momentus's um, space transportation business. And we'll be putting to bed so many technologies for asteroid mining. So we think we have a high chance if NASA makes an opportunity for tipping points to win this. And the reason, part of the reason we're optimistic is the, um, you mentioned technology readiness levels. Um, in the space business, there's a thing called the valley of death, where you do the early stage technology, but then no one will pick it up and fly it. And there's this in-between stage that's missing. The NIAC phase three program was set up by NASA for that in-between stage. And so NASA has programs like the Tipping Point and others that are designed and, and, and that, have been, that, NI, that haven't been accepting these really breakthrough concepts from NIAC. NIAC formed the phase three so that we could do this engineering model hardware to get it ready to fly on those flight demonstration programs like the Tipping Point. So um, we're optimistic that if not Tipping Point, then somewhere else in NASA, a combination of NASA funds, and private sector investors will come in and we'll make this happen. We're, we have reason to be very optimistic. Yeah, well, I agree. Uh, having gone through you know, your history, the marketing literature, the videos and all that, why not, right? Uh, who's got a better track record than you and your teams of putting this stuff together and actually making it work? So, well, thank you, and I wouldn't say that just because you're here. <laughs> you know, sometimes I'll talk to dreamers and I'll know that, you know, they're working hard and whatnot, but the gap between where they are and where you are seems to be quite large. Yeah, well, my ego right up at the front of it. today. So thank you. <laughs> well, 
That's exciting for me. Hey, this is Jason Kanigan, the host of the Cold Star Project and the founder of Cold Star Technologies. I've decided to do something new. I've started doing daily update videos on who I met and what I learned the previous day in the space field. And it's a great sort of follow me thing. You can learn what I learn. I'm meeting a heck of a lot of people and learning a lot of things really fast. And the space field is really disparate. There are tons of nooks and crannies to go into and explore from legal, operational, you know, regulatory compliance and gosh the end customer who would have thought about that right so you can sign up for this if you go to coldstartech.com slash msb that's short for make space boring the mission we're on then you can sign up and in your email you will get a daily notification that the new video has been posted I'm also thinking about doing some branded mini courses and summarizing papers as uh, I'm able to. So those will be some goodies that are in there as well. So if you're interested in that, go to coldstartech.com MSB and join us on the mission to make space boring. Now back to the interview. I want to hop back for, for a second and we'll return to Transastra uh, in a moment. You were the chief systems engineer for the, something called the Transformational Satellite Communication System that the Space and Missile System Center, which sounds incredibly scary. Um, and I'm curious, it, it, this is directly from your LinkedIn profile. You mentioned taking the process maturity from level zero to level three in six months. And so the operations management guy in me is really curious about what you mean by process maturity and what that was like. And I don't need any um, secret yeah, so, information, right? But <laughs> I'm interested. No, no, no. So, so in, in the world of process engineering, there are maturity levels. And, um, you know, there's like um, CMMI has a certification for software maturity. Well, they also have a certification for systems engineering maturity. And so, um, and it's a five level uh, maturity index. Level zero is you don't have processes, you just do work, right? Level one <laughs> is you have basically defined processes, but you don't measure them, you know? And then, um, and then there are, um, and it's been a while for me since I've been, I've worked in that world, but CMMI level three is basically you define the processes. You constantly execute according to the processes. You measure compliance relative mm -hmm. to the process and you, you, you're constantly looking to improve the process. And um, when I started at LA air force base in systems engineering there, the process maturity was basically level zero or level one. And um, because I'd come off that JPL experience that you talked about, I had some concepts uh, of how to increase the maturity of an organization. And the issue is that uh, it was a $22 billion satellite program that we, we were initiating. And they had many requirements documents that had to be written. And there was a capstone requirement document that had like 1,500 requirements in it and probably 300 people that had to coordinate on every one of those requirements. Yeah. So we built what I called the requirements factory to make that happen. And the way the requirements factory worked was I had a small army of systems engineers uh, who were working on different sections of the document. Mm -hmm. And each requirement was, uh, was identified and coordinated and then there were a series of coordination meetings all laid out uh every week like a factory process flow actually mm -hmm. that would lead to a proposed requirement coming to a, a change control board that i chaired and as i recall the change control board was always on thursday afternoon 
and uh, if there wasn't concurrent from the people concurrence from the people we would discuss the issues i'd send it back into um, uh, coordination for another week and if they didn't coordinate the following week then i would have them bring a decision and i would board the the, the requirement in and we we um, and through this process we dramatically increased the maturity and the speed at which that these requirements could be written um, it's too bad that Department of Defense, and to a certain extent, some other agencies, not all of NASA, but some of NASA, not all of the DOD, but some of much of the DOD, uses this requirements-based systems engineering process for acquisition. Acquisition means mm. buying systems that don't exist and having contractors build them. It's mm. a very inefficient and cumbersome process, but if you're stuck with it, then the way to do it is to be as systematic as possible. We don't do anything like that at Transastro Momentus. It would, hmm. it would be poison. Um, so we, it's much more, um, we try to get process maturity, but uh, for different types of processes based on different value systems. Mm -hmm. for in, at, at Momentus and Transastro, it's all about innovation, invention, physics, collaboration, daring, bold, uh, efficient, uh, those kinds of things. So it's a very different game. But then when it comes down to building flight hardware, that's where you have to dot your I's and cross your T's, understand the failure mechanisms, and be very, very serious about um, those requirements that you have to meet, how you're going to verify them, how you're going to validate them. And then what, rather than going through and really chomping through all the requirements in gory detail, what experience shows us is the trick to real systems engineering is close-knit teams that are passionate about the work that test and build and test and build and then system level test is where it's at and you system level test this test the system to make sure it works and so um and so while um the part of dod that i was in in those days is very much a waterfall based top-down mm -hmm. systems engineering approach new space and and microsats and uh, the kinds of industries that are being built they're really centered on agile methods, which really, aerospace agile is different than software agile, but it, it borrows a lot from software. And if we had three or four hours, I could give you a lecture on <laughs> Well, I would like that sometime. Uh, I don't know if everyone else <laughs> would be interested in it, but for me, I'm very curious how you're getting to that sort of same end result of understanding and having clarity on what you're doing and how to make sure things don't break and to get yeah. to the, the mission success rate that you want. Um, yeah. Without getting bogged down in a slow iterative feedback loop, right? That takes forever. Yeah. yeah. So what you want, the answer is a fast iterative feedback mm -hmm. loop, and it's more about building and testing and trying stuff than analyzing things. Hmm. Um, I used to believe that the right approach was to measure twice and cut once. And what I've learned is, if you're trying to innovate, you cut three times test and measure, hmm. cut three times, test three times. When you've got it working, then you do your measurement. Um, uh, and innovation and discovery is about being willing to fail fast and learning from failure. I have a motto that I tell the R&D team at Momentus all the time, which is all knobs to the right. Hmm. If you haven't broken something in the lab this week, you're not working fast and hard enough. And so the team will sometimes, I'll say, how to go in the lab? And they say, well, we burned out this component. We say, what happened? Well, we were testing it and um, you know, we kept turning up the power 
And at this power level, we found it broke. And I say, that's how you do it. Mm-hmm. Test a failure and test a failure fast. And so one of the things that we do at Momentus is we have, this was something that um, some of the, most of the folks from Momentus just fully embrace Agile from day one. Um, we, but we, Momentus embraces diversity. We have people from all different technical backgrounds. And I, I told the team, hey, we're building an in-house machine shop so that we can turn parts in hours instead of days. They said, you're crazy. We just bend it out. It takes a few weeks to get the part back. No problem. Uh, but, but in our R&D efforts, we need parts. You know, our R&D team you know, makes dozens of parts in a month. We can't wait weeks for parts. That would be ridiculous. And then even for flight hardware, if you're like, we're machining uh, the, the Vigoride bus, that bus right there mm-hmm. is on our big um, multi-axis machine tool right now, being hogged out of a big chunk of aluminum. It's really cool to watch it, you know. Right. You can kind of see in that picture the isogrid structure. It's nice to see how that gets machined out. And sure enough, when we were machining it, we broke it. Well, that's why you machine it in-house, because you get insight into the manufacturing process and you right. see what breaks and what doesn't break. And there's nothing like get your, getting your hands dirty if you really want to succeed. Right. Yeah. I, I love that institutional knowledge, right? You can't fake it. You can't really buy it. And once you got it, they can't take it away. <laughs> so, that's right. I that's right. That. And then, then that institutional knowledge is embedded in the minds of your people. Mm-hmm. And so let your reward your people, let them know how important they are to you. And, Everyone talks about that. Hmm. Um, uh, and you can walk into a company and see the difference. You know, I think in the last eight weeks, I've hired 40 engineers at Momentus personally. Hmm. And uh, it is one of the most exciting things for me is just walk into that engineering floor and just, just feel the intensity of, of people behind their workstations hmm. and up at whiteboards and, and, uh, and then walk into the lab and, and you walk straight from the engineering floor into the lab and, and you know, it's back and forth between those. And you see the, the guys hunched over their lab benches, um, uh, cranking and, and burning uh, microwave components and all kinds of other things. It's, it's just thrilling. It's absolutely mm. exciting. Yeah. And I love the idea of just like, go ahead and break it and don't worry about, okay, this is going to cost us some money. You know, as long yeah, as you can absorb it. Often as CTO it. of Momentus, often as CTO of Momentus, engineers will come to me and they say, All right, we need to buy some of these components, you know? And I say, well, how many do you think you need? Well, we need, you know, we need the EM model and then we need, uh, you know, the brass board and then we need, and then we need the test unit and the flight unit. So, you know, four. And I'm like, you need to buy at least six. Yeah. <laughs> probably eight. And inevitably, and I can't tell you how many times, okay, it's just something like, I'll tell you, you know, a story from the, the lab at Momentus. Do you know what 80-20 bar is? I know what the 80-20 rule is. <laughs> well, the 80-20 rule yeah. is, is used for this stuff called 80-20. It's these yeah. machined aluminum bars that are called 80-20 bars. Okay. And for 20% of the cost, you can do 80% of all the structures that you need mm-hmm. in the lab. So, um, uh, and I said, you guys, I want to see stuff made out of 80-20 here okay? for laboratory work. We can quickly assemble structures and that sort of thing and see how they go. And um, some of the engineers were ordering 80-20. And uh, they came, brought to me the order and I looked at it and I said, I need you to order four times as much. And they looked at me like, you're, you're crazy. Hmm. 
and um, they ordered four times as much. And then two weeks later, they came back and said, we're out. And I said, okay, this time I want you to order six months supply. Okay. That was three months ago. Mm -hmm. They're just about out again. And, and so the point is, is you've got to have inventory. And people say, well, we can get it overnight. But if you're iterating rapidly in the lab, overnight is too slow. Mm-hmm. So the spirit of innovation and discovery, you know, it's, it's rapid innovation is what gets you to success in, uh, in the modern world of you know, 2019, 2020, now we're going into. Uh, it's rapid you know, it's collaborative computer-based engineering, software tools that control your requirements, linked, you know, you know, we have, um, we have interns that we hired at Momentus that went back to school and uh, uh, we're, they're still doing CAD designs for us. And then it's all integrated through our system. So. Very cool. Let's say you get, a, well, you will get a bunch of these honeybee ships up there grabbing asteroids and whatnot. What happens if, if uh, one of them breaks? What kind of repair process have you got? Is it some kind of self-healing thing or does another ship have to fly up to it to fix it? Well, eventually the honeybees will be, um, you know, repairable, but uh, initially they will be expendable. Okay. And um, so this is all about uh, statistics. Mm-hmm. So, um, so you never build an aerospace company with a success oriented mindset. Okay. You need to plan for failure in the process. Um, you know, uh, there's, you know, many, many countries have tried to land on Mars so far only JPL has done it. And only about 75% of JPL's Mars landers have worked. Maybe it's a little higher than that now. Um, you know, um, in the first dozen launches of any new rocket, there's at least a 50-50 chance of a catastrophic failure. Hmm. Doesn't matter who's building it. Um, and so, uh, and these failure, and so what you have to do in, in the asteroid mining business, the prospecting is going to be done with telescopes mm-hmm. based on statistical models. So there'll be a certain probability that when you get to an asteroid, it's actually water rich. And so you have to calculate all these probabilities and the reliability of the system and, ec- and build that into your economic model. And uh, just like if you're building a mine, you have to have an idea of what the known failure rate of the, of the digging equipment is. It's the same process. Okay. Now later on, mm-hmm. um, I remember many years ago, I was in a conversation with a certain unnamed space billionaire. Uh, and we were talking about the role of humans in space. And he said, humans have no practical value in space hmm. when it comes to space industry. They're, uh, and you know, and, I think we'll get to the point where teleoperation for repair mm-hmm. will be the way to go. And then mm-hmm. um, ma- modern manufacturing technology, additive manufacturing, um, and other related uh, approaches will allow us to fabricate parts in space and mm-hmm. replaceable parts in space. Uh, but that'll be a while until we get there. Right. I, um, I, humans I... are going to be incredibly important in space in the coming years and decades mm-hmm. because. Humans want to go to space and we're willing to expend a lot of resources to go into space. Um, And so for the same, so humans will go into space for fun. 
and that'll be a huge industry. Suborbital flights, then orbital hotels, then lunar hotels. Lunar hotels will be an important cornerstone user of water and space hmm. that will drive both lunar polar ice mining and asteroid mining. And that's going to be huge. And once the networks, the transportation and supply networks are in place to support large NASA and other government scientific outposts on the lunar poles, that'll grow into hotels on the lunar poles. And then that in transportation infrastructure will make it so cost effective that people go to, to, to space to live uh, on their own nickel. <laughs> and then those space workers, their proximity to the factories that will be building things in space will enhance productivity. And so humans will be the, the, a, a critical linchpin in driving space industrialization. Well, I happen to agree with that. And I'll start from my much dumber perspective uh, in that communication is a problem <laughs> with, these, with these large distances, right? The further you go out, the, that it's not much farther than the moon, you start getting a, a real gap in uh, yeah, response even, times even, and whatnot. So. Absolutely. Even teleoperation over lunar distance with the, you know, I can't remember offhand what the light uh, delay is, but it's, you know, on the order of seconds. Mm -hmm. uh, that really messes up teleoperation. Right. And um, AI is an incredibly powerful technology and also a um, little overhyped. So um, making practical robots that can do the kinds of things mm -hmm. that people can do in the short term is going to be really challenging. So you design your systems to be highly reliable based on tests uh, and practical experience. And then for maintenance that has to be done servicing, you design them to be as modular as possible. Yeah. So the dumbest possible robot can do the work in a combination of autonomous mode and teleoperation. Right. And that, that is something that I'm really excited about. I love modular design and, self-repairing robots and not having to go and re-engineer something from scratch just to there you uh, go just to get it done so what should people be looking for next from from you and and uh transastra momentus this is going to happen so so momentus then, has our el camino real spacecraft in orbit now it was launched on july 4th california time and it's been functioning fantastically in space for months we've done dozens of uh, burns with our microwave uh, plasma water propulsion system. And we'll be extending that. We're, we're validating certain aspects of our avionics software, attitude control sensors, and the microwave plasma propulsion system in space. And um, we're going to be upgrading the autonomy on that and learning low-cost operations through that system. And uh, so we'll, we'll have blogs and press releases and that sort of thing. Um, go to www.momentus.space and uh, read the blogs on that, but stay tuned. Um, uh, Momentus will be launching uh, test missions in 2020. Uh, we won't be announcing those in advance, but uh, don't be surprised if you find out that there's some pretty exciting spacecraft that look like the bus in the back of that doing some really cool things in orbit. Um, and uh, Momentus is taking orders uh, for um, in-space transportation services now. And, uh, you know, we completed a roughly $35 million Series A venture financing um, a few months ago. 
and we'll be moving into uh, later stage financing. There'll be some big announcements on that coming up. Um, and um, really revolutionizing in-space transportation by deploying constellations, large and small, of microsats and small sats in the 2021, 2023 timeframe. And then moving from low Earth orbit to geostationary orbit and throughout cislunar space, with a series of different types of shuttle services in the coming years. Uh, so Momentus is an incredibly powerful financial play, revolutionizing in-space transportation using water as propellant. Momentus and Transastra are partnered, and the partnership is centered on water. Transastra will be the, um, the preeminent water supplier from extraterrestrial resources from both the asteroids and the moon. NASA has funded uh, Transastra uh, to uh, define a lunar polar mining outpost. And um, uh, if you want, uh, I can send you the link to a video that where I outline the technologies and what we're doing there, it's very exciting. We have discovered that there is absolutely no need for nuclear power for hmm. multi-megawatt mining operations in dark lunar craters. Hmm. And um, we've got some very powerful inventions uh, which I can talk to you about now if you want, or I can send you the link. Sure. Uh, or, yeah. Either, either would be good, or you could come back on and we could have another time to talk about that. Why don't we do that? Why don't we sure. do a, why don't we do a lunar polar mining okay. podcast? That would be um, great. I'll show you artist concepts for how all this stuff works. Okay. And I tell you what, I won't say how it works today. <laughs> Instead, uh, I'll come back and that's a teaser for your audience for the next right. get together. So Transastra is doing our phase three. We'll be having some nice announcements about uh, our NIAC phase three and follow up activities. We're working in telescope technology to find mm -hmm. the asteroids and, um, and lunar mining. So it's all very exciting. Uh, and things are moving so fast, I can't even. Yes, <laughs> yes it is. Yeah, and I'm happy to be teeny tiny part of it and seeing what you're doing. So my oh, guest today. I'd love to get the word out. Thank you so <laughs> yes. much for inviting me today. Thank you. My guest today has been Dr. Joel Sircell, a guy who is pretty amazing and has been around in this field a long time and is continuing to do really powerful stuff in the industry.